All right. Good morning. Elbow the person beside you. See if they're awake. Tell them good morning. Some of them must have been asleep. That was pretty lame. Um, Hey, I would love for you to open up in your Bibles to the, the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. In a moment, I will read the entire scripture passage myself. Uh, but as you're turning there, uh, I want to just remind you that next Sunday we have a, a Christmas party. A Christmas party that we're encouraging you to invite family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and enemies to. Um, it would really help, though, if you would RSVP your family's attendance and your guests' attendance by tomorrow so that we can get a right amount of fried chicken. Uh, those of you who haven't been to Sally's in Springville, we're going to eat. We're going to bring some of Sally's fried chicken to Marion. And so uh, today, maybe send your last text messages or phone calls. See if you can invite last person and RSVP for yourself. If technology is really hard for you and you can't send a text message to this number above or to send an email, you can just elbow me this morning and tell me how many people are coming, and we'll add you to the list. Um, elbow me, you can kick Gary, uh, and you can give a gentle handshake to Megan. Any one of us will, will get your RSVP for next week. It's going to be, I think it's going to be neat. There's going to be some games, some activities, there's stuff for kids, separate stuff for families together. So I hope you can join us next Sunday, five to seven. Uh, let me turn our attention to the scripture reading this morning. Uh, listen to God's word from Matthew chapter one, verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is God's word. I was thinking this week about, um, I think I was a senior in high school, and at at that point I had been trying or saying that I had been a Christian for maybe five years at that point, Uh, but, but at a lot of People maybe 17, 18 years of age trying to, to walk with Jesus. My walk uh, was tough. There's a lot of a hidden and unconfessed sin. There was a, a, many, many doubts. Uh, that, By the way, they, they resurfaced after 18 too. But I do remember that particular season of my life, God had put in my hands a book at that time, and the title of the book was Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And if you're unfamiliar with this book, it was written by a man named Josh McDowell. And what was unique about this book was uh, McDowell just put in evidence after evidence that required you to make a decision on who this person was called Jesus the Christ. And McDowell included historical evidence for Jesus Christ. He talked about the archaeological evidence for Christianity. He included some of the the logical and philosophical reasoning that that gave a substantive argument and persuasive uh, ideas for these things are true. And I, I remember reading this book in my bedroom, and just like this sense of peace and joy came over my heart, and I was like, the stories are true. This is the things that Christianity proclaims, the things that Christianity holds out, happen in real space, time, and history. And and these things are true. We can build our lives on things that are a hard foundation to build on. 
in, in many ways, when you pick up the Gospel of Matthew, uh, this first book in the front of our New Testament, you have a book put together intentionally by one of the disciples of Jesus Christ that was trying to persuade people that the stories were true. I encourage you, this December, there's 31 days in December, there's 28 chapters in Matthew. Read the Gospel of Matthew, and you even have a few cheat days in there, right? But, but there's more, one of the recurring terms in the Gospel of Matthew is these things were fulfilled. These things came true. Most likely, the Gospel of Matthew was written at a time when Christian persecution was on the, on, on the rise. For a while, first century Jews and first century Christians kind of intermingled in the same synagogues. But pretty soon, they began to get persecuted and Christians were thrown out. And, and Matthew, you know, almost in his dying breath and, and one, toward the end of his life, he put into print, he put into writing the things that he knew about Jesus Christ that, that he wanted to persuade, particularly his Jewish brothers and sisters. These are true. Build your life on these. Let God change your life. And so for what we're going to do today is kind of an introduction to the book through this single verse, as well as the next couple weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 and be reminded of these true stories about the arrival of Jesus, who is the Messiah. So pray with me, and then we'll get going. Father in heaven, I would ask that in your mercy, you would speak through me. Help the, the truth of the Bible to resonate in our hearts and then to flow out into our lives. We pray for uh, a, a deeper conviction of the mind of what is true, a deeper connection of the heart to the God who has done these true things, and ultimately then a deeper engagement in our lives to act on these things. We would ask that you would help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this verse 1 uh, says this is the genealogy. Some translations might say these are the, this is the origin of Jesus the Christ, who is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what... Uh, Matthew is doing is he is he is telling us that the two most significant storylines in the Bible collide on this person who is Jesus of Nazareth, now known as the Messiah, the Christ, or the Anointed King. Uh, but what makes these two storylines significant? And what I mean by storylines, this term "son of David," "son of David." What makes these two things significant? This is what makes it significant is that this is Matthew declaring to the listener, the reader, that ultimate happiness and final authority are found in Jesus Christ. Ultimate happiness and final authority are in Jesus Christ. So let's talk a little bit about these two ideas of happiness and authority. Happiness and authority. Here's just kind of a general principle. I think this is just true of life. This is a, of the world. And that's this, that each person submits to an authority, or you could say each person submits to many authorities in order to find happiness. Every person submits to different authorities in order to find happiness. Uh, but let's first define our terms. So what is happiness? I turn to the Oxford English Dictionary. The Oxford English Dictionary tells us this. Happiness is the state of pleasurable contentment of mind or deep pleasure 
or contentment with one's circumstances. Synonyms for happiness include words like bliss, cheerfulness, joy, and blessedness. How about a definition for authority? Well, authority refers to legitimate power, decision-making capacity, and the means to cause others to obey. So words like a th- for similar to authority include rule, charge, and command. Uh, maybe if you look out your window, you'll see two different types of people in the world. Uh, you might say that one type of people uh, believe that the secret to happiness is to elude authority. And then the other type believes that submitting to the best authority gives you the best shot at happiness. So let's talk a little bit about the anti-authority crowd. Uh, The anti-authority crowd might use phrases or live by ideas such as, you're the boss of you, find your own happiness. Uh, The anti-authority crowd will reject ancient authority. They'll turn against things like natural law. But instead, to be happy, chart your own course. Live your truth and do whatever makes you happy. Uh, So that fleshes out in our world in all sorts of ways. Uh, Such people will often run away from an unhappy marriage, engage in sexual activity whenever and with whomever, uh, might push back at social customs, longstanding commands. They'll just say no to authority. Subtext, (laughs) or in reality, no authority but themselves. Right, But the pro-authority crowd, and, and we have a, I mean, there's always a pro-authority crowd, not just in the 21st century, every century. Uh, but it shows up in our day uh, when you're looking for the right influencer, self-help book, trainer, or guru that knows the five steps to unending happiness. That is, if you eat just the right diet, you will be immune from all illness. If you just invest in the right funds recommended by the right investor, you will be immune from all recessions. Uh, The pro-authority crowd will turn to different podcasters, books, and YouTubers to find the secret to happiness. Uh, But for whatever reason, the Bible will stay on the shelf. God's authority can't be the answer, and so they keep on looking. Now, this little cultural milieu reminds me of a statement that's actually 100 years old by one of my favorite writers. His name is G.K. Chesterton. Uh, And this is what G.K. Chesterton said 100 years ago. He wrote this. He says, when men stop believing in God, they don't then believe in nothing. They believe in anything. Sometimes it's they believe in everything. right? Right? So... We're, we're, the idea is we're built for belief. Like we were made to trust things, made to trust people, made to trust God. But if you kind of put God on the shelf, you will find something or someone to trust in. Because we're all seeking happiness. And we all know that at some level you have to submit to some authority in order to get that happiness. And then you encounter Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. You, you encounter someone who says, someone has arrived who is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king. And the reason we know he is, he says, is of two, he, he fulfills two long-promised 
uh, things. He is the son of Abraham, and he is the son of David. Now, if you're a 21st century American, like son of David, son of America, son of uh, Abraham, like they, that doesn't mean much to you. Now, now to a first century Jew, it's like huge. Like for a Jew, being a son of Abraham is more significant than being like a son of Caesar, or to be the son of David is more significant than being a son of Zeus. Uh, you know, so maybe for like a 21st century person, like. Like, would you get excited if, you know, think about like the roll credits of Star Wars, right? The son of Thor, the child of Wonder Woman breathes his first breath. You're like, oh, this is going to be a good one. Right? That, that's kind of the mic drop thing that Matthew is doing when he is saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham and son of David. In, in fact, I'm going to kind of lay, lay the ground <laughs> Uh, by by uh, letting you know what happens at the end of the book, right? right. And so the, the main point, if I could bring home like a main idea today, it would be this. It's like, because of who Jesus is, we need to believe in him and we need to bow before him. Believe in him and bow before him. Uh, in fact, so we've looked at one one of Matthew. Turn to the very end of Matthew. Uh, if you're ever trying to do understand a book of the Bible, uh, one if you want to call it hack for Bible study, is called the top and the tail, right? The top and the tail. If you want to understand what a book means, sometimes if you read the first chapter and you read the last chapter, you see themes. You see this in Matthew. You see this in the book of Romans. Uh, but let's look at the tail. So we've read the top of Matthew. What's the tail of Matthew? Uh, I'll start in verse 18. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here at the end of Matthew, we have Jesus Christ. He has been crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected. Uh, this is the end of the story, but obviously the beginning of the story of the church. But what Jesus says is, as the resurrected one, all authority, notice all, not some, all authority of heaven and earth is he possesses. And he's saying, now go for and declare this news to every nation that they would know him, bow before him. And it says, obey him in everything, in all ways, in all situations. Um, scripture tells us that Christ is now ascended, is seated at the right hand of God. He is ruling from heaven, bringing enemies under his feet, saving sinners from sin, and establishing churches all throughout the world to be beachheads or embassies of the coming kingdom of God. And so when we come today preaching about Jesus, yes, we're remembering that he came humbly in a manger. He came as a servant. He was made into human form in order to die for his people. So he's a king like no other king, and yet he's still a king. He came first as a manger. If you read the end of Revelation, the next time he returns on a white horse with authority to judge. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. 
We're going to see the importance of this introductory verse. We'll come back next week and we'll look at the significance of the genealogy, which is more exciting than it sounds. Trust me. Three points this morning. Uh, Number one, as the son of Abraham, Jesus is the source of ultimate happiness. That's going to be point number one. As the son of Abraham, Jesus is the source of ultimate happiness. Point number two, as the son of David, Jesus is the king with ultimate authority. Hence, point number three, we must believe in and bow before Jesus the Christ. Point number one, as the son of Abraham, Jesus is the source of ultimate happiness. Source of ultimate happiness. Now, again, the term son of Abraham, on one hand, could just be a, you know, to say like, I'm a Jewish person. I'm an Israelite. Uh, But in the context that Matthew is introducing Jesus here as the son of Abraham, he's actually hearkening back to a number of prophecies in the book of Genesis. And I want to look at one of them with you. So turn in your Bible back to Genesis. This one's always much easier to find than the rest of the things in the Bible. It's the first book. And uh, the 12th chapter is the big number, 12 As you turn there, know that at this point in the history of the Bible, through the first 11 chapters, uh, things have not gone well for humanity in the earth. Uh, God had planted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to rule with God, to be his image bearers, to reflect the ordering and beautifying of the world and to, in in, in many ways, expand the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth. And yet they failed in their responsibility. They, They marred the image of God. They failed in their calling. And the, much of the book of Genesis from chapter 1 to 11 is just the spiral into rejecting God and not trusting God and doing what our hearts want rather than being submitted to God's will. And right before chapter 12 begins is the scene uh, in Genesis 11 about the Tower of Babel. Those of you who remember the Tower of Babel, p- people built this tower. They were building this structure in order to, to get to the heavens which is just they're repeating the same sin of Eve and Adam. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to have their own authority. They wanted to rule the heavens. And in Genesis 11, God, one of the more funny scenes in the Bible, right, it says that God looked down at their their big structure and said, oh, we're going to knock down your little tower. And God does. And and what, what you have at the end of Genesis 11 is a dispersed people. They're out there under God's judgment. They're separated from God. They're separated from one another. But in Genesis 12, God comes to one man and says, I have a plan to redeem humanity. And it's going to come through you. And he comes to a man named Abram. So in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, whose name will later be changed to Abraham, but he comes to this man. Remember, they're all spread out. They're all under God's judgment. And he says, this is what I want you to do, Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you... 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So 4,000 years ago, in the middle of a time of, of the world under judgment, God comes to one man and he says, Abram, you are the front engine of my train of salvation. I'm starting with you. And those who come after you and, and believe in me, like, like you believe in me, they are going to experience this blessing. He says, I'm going to use, I'm going to bless you. Now, I, I'm, I want to use the expression ultimate happiness only because the word blessing sometimes has really got kind of inoculated in the church. Like you sneeze. What do people say? God bless you. You're like, what, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. Like, does that mean get a tissue? Um, so it's a word that's been inoculated. But like, I think we can get our mind around the idea of ultimate happiness. Like we've all been happy. We've had that, that moment, whether maybe, maybe for you, maybe it was your wedding day or maybe the first time your girlfriend kissed you or maybe it was the, the first time you put together that gigantic Lego, Lego creation and you invited your family like, I did it. And everyone's like, oh, that's happiness. And those are good things. And, and in many ways, when... Um, God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to bless you. He blesses him with all sorts of little happy things. He, he, get, he gets many blessings. He gets, he gets a child after years of waiting and going through um, the pain of not being able to build children. He, he gets some land. He gets some cattle. He gets some cash. And that's God just showing, I, I, I'm going to bless you, Abram. But behind the little blessings of Abram and the, the little moments of happiness, there's, there's loaded in here a gun of ultimate happiness. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. A happiness that doesn't end and happiness that goes on forever. A, a blessing that cannot go away. But rooted to this idea of ultimate happiness is getting back to what was lost in the garden. We never want to forget that the Bible is one large story. And God's intention from the beginning was to have a people who would walk before him and reflect him in their life. That's really how the Bible ends. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And the people reflect the greatness of God in resurrected bodies. And so in the middle of the story, still wrestling with sin and temptation, he comes to one man named Abram, and he basically says, Abram, I want you to be my people. I'm choosing you out of judgment to now walk with me and be about my purposes. And Abram does it. You read about Abram. He is called the man of faith for a reason. He walks by faith in the promises of God, and God blesses him. But the story of the Bible continues. It's not just for Abram and Abraham, not even just for his physical descendants. It's for all those who believe in the God of Abraham. And you have all sorts of non-Jewish, non-Israelite people who experience the blessing along the way. Come back next week. We'll talk about some of those people. And so sometimes people might ask the question, well, how do I experience ultimate blessing? Right? How, do, how do I escape the judgment that the world is under? Well, it's the, one of the major messages throughout the Bible. It was true of Abram. It will be true of you or me. Is that we are saved by grace through faith. Right? Abram was chosen out of the world by grace. 
There's nothing about Abram or Abraham that describes him as a wonderful guy that God hunted down and found the most wonderful person on the earth and said, hey, Abram, I guess I'm going to bless you because you're not as bad as the rest of them. Genesis 12 says he went to one man by grace. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. Not because you're good, not because you're wonderful, but because God is gracious. And Abraham believes. In fact, you read later in uh, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when Christianity comes onto the scene in the first century, the message is still the same. It's just clear now how. How can God save people? It's you are saved by grace, not by works, but based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the invitation is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of Abraham, the son promised to give ultimate blessing, ultimate happiness to any and all who believe. The son of Abraham dies for his people on the cross so that they can be forgiven and made people who then live for him and his purposes. Thus, ultimate happiness, it's not about making the varsity team. It's not about getting first chair in the band. It's not getting a job in the C-suite. It's joining the people of God, being called out of the world to serve God and his purposes. And so the invitation to any and all is you believe in Jesus as the son of Abraham, who then extends the ultimate blessing to anyone who believes. But everywhere throughout the Bible, including here in Matthew 1, 1, is that belief is never severed from obedience. Belief is never severed from obedience. Trusting Jesus is never detached from bowing to Jesus. And so in the same breath of Son of Abraham, the one who brings the ultimate happiness, he's also the son of David, the one who has ultimate or sole authority. Again, remember, Jesus is the collision of two storylines in Scripture. One of them is this story of Abraham, this promised one who would come bring blessing to all people. But Matthew says there's this other major storyline that collides on this single person. And that Jesus is the son of David. Now, if you've been around church at all, you've probably heard of David. This is the David of David and Goliath fame. Uh, after David uh, successfully uh, puts down that really tall Philistine, he actually spends a good uh, many uh, years running for his life because even though God had chosen him to be king, the uh, king at that time named King Saul wanted to kill David. And so he runs and he flees and he hides. And in God's sovereignty, King Saul dies. And King David is brought to the throne. And early in 2 Samuel, David, in response to God, to God's mercy, to God's saving, David goes to God, God, I want to build you a house. It's kind of beautiful. I want to build you a temple. I want to bring... You have been so good to me, God, I want to make your name known to all the nations. And God says, no, David, you don't get to build me a house. God says, I'm going to build you a house. But when he says, I'm going to build you a house, he's not talking about architecture. He's talking about a household or a lineage, a heritage. And in the middle of 2 Samuel chapter 7, there are, we'll focus on two verses that talk about the kind of house God is going to build through David. 
verse 12 of 2 Samuel. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So, David, you're going to die. This isn't for you. The promise of this king to come, it's not you. Verse 16, it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, David, there's going to be a king that comes from you who's going to have a kingdom that never ends. Now, that's an audacious promise. A forever king, a forever kingdom. By the way, this is why 10 centuries later, when John the Baptist shows up and he says, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. People flock out to hear about this king, this kingdom. And they keep asking John the Baptist, Are you, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the king with this everlasting kingdom? And remember what John the Baptist says? Oh, it's not me. Not me. There's someone coming, and he is so worthy. I, I, I'm not even worthy enough to, to tie the guy's shoes. But he's coming. A few months later, he actually points at Jesus of Nazareth and says, Behold, here's the Lamb of God. Here's the one you've been hoping for. And then when Jesus begins his ministry, he begins to demonstrate the kind of authority this king has. He has authority over creation. The winds and the waves obey his voice. He has authority over sickness and death. He heals lepers and he raises the dead. Jesus has authority over spirits. The demons go whenever Jesus says go. Therefore, King Jesus has ultimate authority. The authority to judge the living and the dead. The authority to grant life or bring condemnation. The stories are true. And all those you can find is you just read in the Gospel of Matthew. And you can see them reconfirmed in the Gospel of Mark. And reconfirmed in the Gospel of Luke. And reconfirmed in John's Gospel. As the son of Abraham, Abraham, Jesus is the source of ultimate happiness. As the son of David, Jesus is the king with ultimate authority. Now we're going to know from elsewhere in Scripture than Matthew 1.1 that Jesus is not just a physical descendant of these two men. Uh, he's also the eternal Son of God. But we're not there yet in Matthew 1. Matthew is just simply stating the major premise of the, of the entire book. That the long-awaited Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, he has come. And tied with this is the assumed, though understated, application. You must believe in and bow before Jesus Christ. Now, incidentally, if you get later in your Bible, there's an interesting question. At least I think it's interesting later in Matthew. Uh, there's, there's a question about Jesus that goes like this at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Someone says, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Do you, do you remember who asked this question later in the Bible? What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Now, at this point in Matthew's gospel, it's actually when Jesus is on trial. 
Various liars have made accusations. Different Jewish leaders have stirred up trouble. And now Jesus stands stripped, beaten, and abandoned before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And he's before an angry mob. Pilate has found no fault in Jesus, but Pilate doesn't want the mob to now turn on him. So Pilate asks the crowd the question. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And the crowd yelled, crucify him. And that's exactly what Pilate did. So let me flip the question for you. What will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? One of my favorite books and a tolerable movie is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And what's interesting is uh, these little British children, they walk through what's like a closet and into a new world. And do you remember how shocked the fawn Tumnus is when he sees a human in the land of Narnia? He, he encounters one of the little girls named Lucy. Uh, and he says, are you a daughter of Eve? Right? Are, you, are you a human? Are you a daughter of Eve? And the reason he is shocked is because there was an ancient prophecy in Narnia that when two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve came to Narnia, there would be a, a redemption. There would be a, a victory. Because right now the world is under the control of the white witch and it is winter always, but never Christmas. Mr. Tumnus realizes he is looking in the eye of the very person who might bring about freedom. But compare that to when the white witch encounters Edmund. So Edmund, Lucy's brother, also walks through the wardrobe slash closet. <laughs> and when the white witch sees Edmund, she is afraid. Because those two kings and two queens of Narnia mean that her reign is about to end. She knows that trouble lies ahead. And so the white witch does everything in her power to resist the prophecy. And I think Tumnus the fawn and the white witch represent the two different responses for Jesus for about 2,000 years. Some people respond with joyful shock that Jesus is the long-awaited, promised son of God, son of Abraham, son of David, hope for ultimate happiness. And others reject him. Because they see him as fake, false, foolish, fanciful, fantasy. What will you do with Jesus who is called Christ? Let me just give a couple of thoughts for people, different people here today. And uh, then we'll move to an ending um, I just want to first talk to the person who, the Christian person who is tired and weary. Uh, maybe you look out into a strange, evil, broken world. Um, uh, you still love God. You still love the Bible. But you've actually moved past cynical to just discouraged. And, and to you, Christian, I say the line, the song we sang today, you know, good Christian men and women rejoice. Right? That your king has come. Your king has conquered, and your king now reigns. Like, that is good news. Jesus reigns from heaven. 
And part of what it says, he's bringing all enemies under his feet. Uh, that does mean the wicked tyrants and the forces of evil, they'll lose. But it also means that the things in your heart, in your life, that are still ugly, that are still broken, that are still uh, sinful, like the king can bring those to their knees too. That's good news. Tied to that is also the wonderful news that you have been forgiven and graced and loved and accepted before those things have all been put away. Like we rest in grace and we proceed in faith. Remember, Christian, that, that, that he is the son of David. He is your king. And so if there's areas of your life not submitted to him, bring them back and say, I need to submit that to you. I need to turn. The invitation, if you're, if you're not a Christian, the invitation is to come. Like that's one of the recurring uh, commands in the New Testament, come. But know that the come always does come with conditions. Repent and believe. Right? That means turn from false kings, return from false places that you've been seeking happiness. Turn from those and turn to Christ as Savior and King. There's that invitation to yield your heart to him. To the one who died for you, yield your heart to him. You can trust him with the stuff that you've been wondering if you can trust him with. You can trust him with that too. So come to him, yield to him. The stories are true. Have you ever thought how like just single sentences can change someone's life entirely? Uh, For instance, this sentence. Honey, I'm pregnant. Right? Things are different now. But you can also get a message, I'm sorry, son, your mom has died. You could hear the news, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You can also hear this marriage is over. Matthew 1.1, though, is meant to be a sentence that turns the world upside down. The son of Abraham, the son of David, the Christ has come. Jesus is the source of ultimate happiness. He alone can bring you to permanent state of contentment, bliss, and joy. So too, Jesus possesses sole authority. That means he alone has legitimate power, decision-making capacity, and the means to cause others to obey. But there's something that I want you to think about. is There's one thing to, for Jesus to be the son of David, or the Christ, versus him being my Christ, my Savior. I came across a story this week about a famous British actor named Charles Loughton. Some of you maybe know who this is. Uh, Charles Loughton was kind of a just a renowned um, actor, and uh, like people would actually go to uh, concert halls and just listen to him recite poetry because of his voice and his presence. And as the story goes, he was actually attending a Christmas party once in America. And after dinner, in this, 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 they had this living room, and, and they just asked all the people, hey, would you share something that you have memorized or share something that means something to you? And everybody took turns. And when it came uh, to Charles Loughton, he recited the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he did it with this resonance and this voice and everyone, wow, that was great. And then they kept going. Uh, but as they were coming to the end, they, they noticed there was this older woman in the corner and she happened to be the aunt of the host. And she had been snoozing, uh, kind of disengaged, tired. Um, 
But they loved her and they, they woke her and they asked, is there something that you would like to share with us? And she kind of came out of her state and she, she said, I'd like to recite Psalm 23. And she said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leaves me as I green pasture, or leaves me quiet waters, takes me to green pastures. You know, he just recited Psalm 23. And the room began to weep as she recited Psalm 23. And later when Mr. Lawton was leaving, they, someone asked him, like, I mean, yours was good. <laughs> But hers was great. And, and he, this was, he explained why. He said, well, I know the psalm, but she knows the shepherd. That's the difference of when Christ becomes your savior. And then when God becomes your shepherd, there's something different. Let me just assure you, brothers and sisters, the stories are true. Father in heaven, I would just ask that in your mercy, that if someone hasn't moved from just knowing the facts to knowing the shepherd, you would work on hearts. That people would go from Jesus being the Christ to my Christ. Uh, go from just being a king or the king to my king. We thank you, Christ, that you have come. Thank you that you have died and given your life for your people. We rejoice now that you are the reigning king, and we just want to be faithful uh, subjects and and followers of King Jesus. Pray that he would get much praise and honor this Christmas, for he rightfully deserves all praise and all honor and all obedience. To the glory of God the Father, we give you our lives. Amen.